Uh, today is Palm Sunday. It's kind of the, the day we, we traditionally celebrate Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And, uh, and all the Gospels tell us the story about Jesus entering into the city. A lot of the Gospels tell us that uh, Jesus gives his disciples instructions about going and finding a donkey that's tied up. And you bring, bring the donkey and people will ask, what are you doing with the donkey? And they say, well, the master needs him. Jesus gets on the donkey, people laying out cloaks, and he enters into the city. And we're going to look at it from uh, Matthew chapter 21. That's the, that's the text we're going to look at. So if you've got your Bibles with, uh, with you, uh, you can open up to Matthew 21. It will also be on the, on the screen here. Matthew 21. We'll start with verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, and they asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, if you've never heard the story before, or if you've heard it lots, you probably pick up on the fact that Jesus enters into Jerusalem, and, and it's like he's, he's like he's a king, right? There's something, there's something very regal about this, something very distinguished and exalted about the way Jesus enters in. You don't throw parties like this except for champions. You don't, you don't usher someone into the capital city unless they're assuming some kind of position of authority. And, and so Jesus comes in as a king. And that's clear from what the crowds say. They say, Hosanna to the son of David. Now here's a question for all of you kids. Who is David? Anyone want to give me a really, really quick, brief answer? Who's David? What do we got? Any of you? He's a king. The greatest king. The greatest king in it. Way to go, guys. Bonus points. Gold stars, the greatest king in the history of Israel, oversaw the, the golden era of Israel where they were extending their influence and power further than they really ever did afterwards. And David was also a man who loved God. And so God made a covenant, a promise with David that he would always, there would, there would be a descendant of David on the throne in Jerusalem forever. That was kind of the promise. And so even when Israel fell on hard times, even when, even when they were divided, and conquered and exiled, they still held on to this hope that God would raise up a descendant of David who would be king and who would restore his people, even when his people were, were returned to the land and, and yet were still under the thumb of, of Persia and Greece and Rome, they still held on to this hope that God was going to raise up a son of David, a king who would deliver them. There was always, always this hope. And so when Jesus comes in and they're going, Hosanna, a Hebrew term of praise, Hosanna to the son of David, they're saying, we believe that Jesus is that king. 
That he's that Messiah. He's the son of David who is going to deliver us, who's going to establish his reign. And Jesus is going to redefine what kingship looks like, but Jesus does more or less accept that praise. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't deny it, doesn't reject it. He is, in fact, a king destined to rule, entering into Jerusalem. So that's the first thing you need to see about this story, that Jesus is king. Here's the second thing you need to see. What is the mood of those who receive him as king? Guys, are they happy or are they sad? The people here, do they seem happy or sad? Happy, more gold stars, more thumbs up. They're happy, there's, there's celebration, there's joy, there's, there's partying, right? Like they are proclaiming, this is our king. It reminds me of uh, in 2010, when Vancouver hosted the Winter Olympics, um, after Sidney Crosby scored the golden goal. Look at that, look at that young guy over there. Uh, after Sidney Crosby scored the golden goal, the only, want us the only gold medal that really counts in the Olympics, right? No, no offense to the 100 Norwegian cross-country skiers who win gold medals every Winter Olympics, but it really boils down to hockey, right? Like, that's the only winter sport, really. I'm, I'm just offended, like, lots of people. But they win, they win the gold medal, and I went, I went downtown, right here. That was, that was that day, that was that afternoon. I go downtown, and the streets of downtown are just, they're packed full of people, and they're singing, and they're waving their flags, and they're all wearing red, except for this guy wearing a plain brown sweater. But everybody else... Super patriotic. I mean, I, I've never seen our city so full of joy as that morning or the, that, that afternoon. And to me, that's, that's the mood. That's the excitement. That's the atmosphere of these crowds on Palm Sunday. There's joy. And it goes even further than that. Because right after Jesus enters Jerusalem, some of you know this part of the story, he enters the temple courts. And he sees that an area of the temple courts that had been reserved for the nations to come and pray and worship the God of Israel, that that area has been taken over and that it is now being used as a marketplace and, and there's animals all over the place. And Jesus is so righteously angry about this that he flips over the tables, he flips over the chairs, he drives them out of there. Now, I would say that those people probably didn't experience a lot of joy at Jesus' entry, but... Right after that, we get this detail in Matthew. Verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. See, it's not just that there's joy in receiving Jesus as king, but that there is, that there is, there is um, there's healing. There's, there's blessing. There's life. And I will tell you that I have experienced this, that when I have lived life with myself on the throne of my life. When my life is all about me kind of being satisfied, being happy, that maybe it, it leads to a kind of a superficial and fleeting happiness, but ultimately it, it leads to discontent and, and unrest. But when I bow the knee to Jesus, when, when I live in joyful surrender to him, that's when I find out actually what real freedom is, as counterintuitive as that might seem. That's when I, that's when I discover what life is really supposed to be like. It's, that's, when, that's when it's not just a superficial happiness, but this deep joy, no matter what the circumstances. I've seen this in my life over and over and over again. As much as I want to hold on to power in my life, when I receive Jesus as king, there's joy, there's life, there is blessing, there is healing. 
And the third thing I want to notice here is is who it is that receives Jesus and receives that that blessing. We just said not everybody did. The the money changers and the the chief priests and the teachers of the law, probably not receiving Jesus as, as king, probably not experiencing a lot of joy. But who does? Well, go back to the first part of the story again. When these crowds outside of Jerusalem, are throwing their cloaks down and basically putting out the red carpet for Jesus. Who who are those people? They are, for the most part, pilgrims and peasants from the rural areas of Israel who are coming to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. So they're they're not from Jerusalem. They're from outside. And they come into the city and the people inside the city which would include some of the influential and powerful and rich of Israel's society, go, what is the big deal? Like, what, are, what are people so worked up about? Who, who is this guy that you're making such a, a party for? They tell him, well, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. But you see, the people at the center of, of Israel's life, they, they don't really get it. They don't really see it. Instead, it's these, it's these, these peasants and, and pilgrims and, and kind of outsiders and that's because Jesus himself wasn't, wasn't from the, the, the center. He, he, didn't, he grew up in, in kind of the, the, in relative obscurity. He, he, he spent a lot of his time, not all of it, but a lot of his time with blue-collar types of, of people. That, that, those were his circles primarily. And so, so those are the people who are like, yeah, this is our guy. He's, he's our king. You know, and, and then he goes into, into Jerusalem, into the temple courts, and, and again, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they're not interested in this, but the blind and the lame, those who can't see, those who can't walk, they receive Jesus with joy. They receive him as king. And then you get this in verse 15. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. They did not feel like it was so wonderful. They say, do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never Read? Like you guys are, you guys are the teachers of the law. You know this stuff. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. The the kids praising God. That's what especially grinds the gears of the religious leaders. But Jesus says, No, bring it on. These are these are my people. These kids, these are these are my people. Now, what all those people have in common? The, Pilgrims and peasants from outside of Jerusalem and the blind and the lame and the children. Well, for none of them, and most likely, is their primary goal in life their own glory, their own status, right? Generally speaking, kids don't worry too much about that. The blind and the lame, they've got other things to worry about. The peasants who are living these rural lives, they're not too worried about that. They're not concerned about their own power and their own glory, See, it's really, really difficult to receive Jesus as king and to experience the blessing that comes through that if, if, you, are, if you are living for your own glory. If, if you care a lot about appearing to the world like you have your life together, if you pride yourself on self-sufficiency, it's going to be really, really hard to experience the blessing that comes through Jesus being king. But if you are humble, if you are soft in heart, 
If you recognize your need, you recognize your need for a savior, you recognize your need for grace, well, that changes everything. This is why Jesus said in in Matthew 11, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. That's why Jesus says in in, uh, Matthew 19, "Uh, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them. Let them come to me because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. See, see, God God works through, through children, among others. He speaks through children. He teaches us what what faith and what trust and, and, and what joyful uh, kind of bowing the knee to, to, to Jesus as king, what that looks like. They show us what that looks like. And so this morning, that, that's why we're excited to give our kids this, this space up here to glorify God, to praise him, to, to, to show us that, that joy. But before we do that, before we hand it over to them, I just want to say this one more time. If you're here today and you... Um, and, and you are not, you are, you are still trying to live for your own glory. And, and, and then that prideful pursuit of, of status is still foremost in your life. I really don't have much I can say to you today other than this call to humility. But if you are done or, or are wanting to be done with living for your own glory, if, if you recognize your need for a savior, for healing, for grace, for mercy, then there is such good news for you today. Jesus is for you. He is your king and there is blessing in him. And so let's pray and then the kids are going to come on up and we're going we're to have a performance from them. So Jesus, I pray that today as we continue on in this, that you would make yourself known to us through, through our kids, through your word, through the celebration of, of Palm Sunday today. I pray you'd make yourself known to us. I pray, Lord, that you would bring us into your healing, into your blessing, and that we would see your face today. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, all right, so the kids are just singing about eternity, and, and I, I want to I wanna kind of go off that. And then they're telling the story about Jesus and his, his death and his resurrection. So uh, I want to talk about Jesus as, as his, his character. We talked, about, we talked about what it means to receive him. Well, let's talk about who he is as king briefly. This isn't as long as I usually talk, but we'll, we'll talk about this briefly. It is his character as, as a king. Now, there, were, there was a part of the Palm Sunday story that I totally kind of skipped over. Do you have any kids, like, is there any, like, major part of the Palm story that you felt like, you know, you really didn't talk about this before? It's an animal. I'll give you a hint. The donkey! I didn't really talk much about the donkey, right? That's a pretty big part of the Palm Sunday story because I think it would have been pretty confusing for people who are celebrating Jesus as king and then watching him riding in on a donkey because I'll tell you, there is nothing, there is nothing royal or distinguished about riding a donkey and I know because I've been on one. Where is it? Where is it? Come on, guys, show the picture. There it is. There it is. There's the picture. That was, that was in Israel. That was, uh, that was in the, among the Bedouins, they had us riding camels and donkeys. That is like, you're like four inches off the ground, and it's rougher on your body than riding the wooden roller coaster at Playland. It's pretty brutal. This is what Jesus is riding in on, and, and it just doesn't fit, right? Because if he's the king, you would expect him to be riding a war horse or a chariot or being carried on, on, in on the shoulders of his mighty warriors, but instead he's riding this thing. You know, I talked before about Sidney Crosby's Golden Goal, the 2010 Olympics. A few years ago, I was, uh, don't show the next picture yet, guys. 
uh, a few years ago, the Toronto Raptors, my favorite sports team, won the NBA championship. And I was watching, I was watching the, the championship parade in Toronto, and the streets are packed, and all the players are riding, like really nice cars that are on the top of these fancy double-decker buses. Can you imagine if Kyle Lowry, one of the stars of the team, was riding my 2007 Hyundai Accent in the championship parade? That's, that's my Photoshop job. That's what happens when Rodrigo Tati go to Brazil for like a month. <laughs> so you get graphics like that. So there's, that, that's the best Photoshop I've ever done. There's Kyle, I mean, it just doesn't fit, right? The transportation doesn't fit the occasion. It just doesn't, it just doesn't work. Except that in this case, it does. Because it's actually what the prophets foretold hundreds and hundreds of years before. I mean, Matthew says this. this is what Zechariah the prophet had said, that the king of Israel would come riding in on a donkey. And so it fits because this is how it was supposed to be. It also fits because of the character of Jesus. That he, yes, is a king, but he is a humble king. See, like the, the kings and the rulers and authorities of, of our day, they, they tend, Jesus said this, they tend to lord it over those that they lead. They, they, they tend to do whatever they can. They manipulate and scheme and plot to hold on to that power. They put others down. They abuse others so that they will be lifted up. That's kind of the status quo. That's the pattern. It's not what Jesus does. Jesus rides in on a donkey. He's humble, right? But you see that in other ways too. He, he goes into the temple and again, he heals the, the blind and the lame, those who haven't been able to see, those who haven't been able to walk. He heals them. This is what Jesus does. He's not self-seeking. He wants to bless. He wants to serve. He wants to make people whole again. His character is fundamentally different as, as a humble king. And it's not just who he is as king, but his kingdom itself is different than the kingdoms of this world. You see that because, because Jesus walks into Jerusalem and what's the first thing he does? You would think that most would-be kings would raise up a military, gather the soldiers, start fighting against the Romans. That's what other would-be messiahs did in the first century. Or maybe you march up to the steps of the palace and you demand that they surrender because the real king is in town. But instead, Jesus goes to the temple and instead of kicking a whole bunch of Roman butts, he just, he just overturned some tables and some chairs. But it's because, it's because he, he, is not, he is not establishing a kingdom of this world. He tells, uh, he tells Pilate that. that, this is, that my father's kingdom is not a kingdom of this, of this world. It's fundamentally different. It's a kingdom that grabs a hold of people's hearts. It's a kingdom that values trust and faith and humility. It's a, it's a kingdom that, that breaks in and through in this world, regardless of the political circumstances. It's the kingdom of God. And, and then there's another way that Jesus as king is so radically different. And, 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 and this is where it especially becomes clear. It's not different in a lesser way. It's different in, in so much a greater way, which is in his staying power as king. And this is what the kids were just singing about, about eternity and, and about how Jesus' reign goes on forever and ever. If you, if you fast forward a little bit from Matthew 21, and the kids kind of told this part of the story, um, the, the, the tide of public opinion shifts. Some of those same people spreading cloaks out, celebrating, may very well a week later be the ones who are chanting for Jesus to be crucified because Probably Jesus didn't fulfill their expectations of what a king is supposed to do. 
So, so public opinion turns, and, and, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they, they conspire with the Romans, and they turn one of Jesus' own disciples, Judas Iscariot. They arrange a betrayal. So as Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, this crowd of, of people come, and they arrest him. They haul him off to the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews, and they, and they bring up false witnesses to accuse Jesus of doing all kinds of things. But in the end... It's not anything that they say that gets Jesus in trouble. It's what Jesus himself says. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn a few pages later to Matthew chapter 26, verses 62. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, aren't you going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he spoke in blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He's worthy of death, they answered. I mean, this is, this is cancel culture at its finest right here, right? Some of us get a little irritated about cancel culture where people, you know, if you say something even slightly off or if your, your old tweets from 15 years ago get dragged up, now you're deplatformed. There's no place in society for you to speak anymore. I mean, we could be grateful that we only metaphorically crucify people in the first century said something they didn't like, you were being literally crucified. And, and that's what happens to Jesus. But why is what he says here so incendiary that they instantly go, let's kill the guy? Well, what you got to understand is that Jesus isn't just making things up off the, off the top of his head. That he's actually referring to another prophet in the Old Testament, the prophet Daniel. Uh, Daniel, in the seventh chapter of his book, he has a vision at night. And he says, there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now you hear that, right? Daniel sees a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven, approaching the ancient of days. Jesus says, from now on you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one coming on the clouds of heaven. The chief priest is not an idiot. He knows his scriptures backwards and forwards. He knows what Jesus is saying here. And he knows how that text ends. He knows that it ends with this son of man receiving glory and power, being worshipped by all nations, having this kingdom that is everlasting, that doesn't end. And Jesus here is applying those words to himself. He's saying, I'm not just a king. I'm not just a messiah. I am this one, an everlasting king. And for the chief priest, that must have seemed ludicrous, blasphemous, obviously, maybe even laughable if it wasn't so dark. Because look at, look at where Jesus is at this moment. He's, he's in front of the Sanhedrin. All his friends have betrayed him. He's heading to death. He's going to be stripped bare. He is going to be humiliated like no one ever has been. And yet he's saying that he's this guy? I mean, to the chief priest, that must have seemed so incredibly ridiculous. But we believe that it's true. Because we believe 
that regardless of what it looked like at the time in front of the Sanhedrin, that God was working to accomplish his purposes, that he was actually loading the sins of the world on Jesus, that Jesus would go to the cross, yes, but that he would be raised to life, that he would be resurrected, that for 500, or sorry, for 40 days, he would appear to hundreds and hundreds of people risen from the dead, teaching them, preparing them, that he would ascend to his Father in heaven, but not before telling his disciples that, 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 that they would receive power from on high and that he would come back. We believe that even now Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him and that there is a day coming when he will return, when he will make all things new, he will make all things right, that even now he reigns and that he will reign forever and that we are witnesses of the first fruits of this as his kingdom breaks in and transforms lives. So yes, we believe that Jesus is the eternal king, that there is no end to his reign. There's no expiry date. There's no termination point. It goes on and on and on. And this, more than anything else, sets him apart from the kings of this world. Because if you think about it, every king, every kingdom has its day in the sun and then fades away. In the first century, it would have seemed inevitable that the Roman Empire would go forever. How could anyone defeat it? but they did fall apart. They didn't last forever. In, the, in World War II, the Nazis proclaimed a thousand year Reich. How long did that last for? 12 years? For the last half a century or more, it seemed that, that American power would dominate and that nothing would stop them, but something will. That will fall apart too. And if China emerges as the new global super, superpower, which some people believe it will, it too will not last. It will fade away. And every individual king, every emperor, no matter who they are, fades away. And this is true of whatever you put on the throne of your life. If you put yourself on the throne of your life, you will fade away. Your, your prime lasts for what? Maybe two, three, four decades at the most. If, if you live long enough, you will become weak and dependent on others just as you were when you were an infant. You will fade away. The Bible says humans are like grass. They're, they're blown away. They're here and gone in the blink of an eye. Is it money that you put on the throne of your life? Because money comes and it goes. You've got it, then you don't, and you don't take it with you. It won't do anything for you once you die. Is it, is it some social justice cause because a generation or two from now you devote your life to that? A couple generations from now, it might not be in vogue anymore. That might not be the, the cause that everyone believes in anymore. It fades away. Everything does, but not Jesus because Jesus is eternal. He is the resurrection and the life. His kingdom has no end and he wants you to be a part of that. He wants you to know the blessing, the life, the healing, the joy that comes in putting him in his rightful place on the throne of your life. And so Palm Sunday, this isn't, um, it's not just a historical event that we remember. It's not just something we go, isn't it nice? that Jesus rode on a donkey and people put out cloaks and that's kind of a nice story. Craig really should have gotten his kids to act it out on video. Craig realized that 30 seconds before the sermon started, but that would have been really wonderful. It's a very cute story. It's not just a historical event. 
It is that, but it's something way, way more. It is a calling, an invitation to dethrone all the other contenders to to, to the title of king of your life and to instead place Jesus there and to know that joy, that life, that blessing, that healing. And I pray that that would be true of you today. Jesus, thank you that you are king. Thank you, Lord, that you are not a king like like the other kings and rulers and powers in our world, that you are a humble king, that you embody a kingdom that is not bound to the political realities of our day, but a kingdom that endures forever. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the resurrection and the life. And so we praise you today. We make you king of our lives. We say, Jesus, we want to lay down everything else that that fades away, that cannot bear the weight of our worship, the weight of our adoration. You alone can. And so we place you there. We receive you as king. We receive all that you have for us, Lord Jesus. I pray that that would be true of our church. I pray that that would be true of my brothers and sisters here today, Lord, that they would trust in you above all else as king of their life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us at the Bridge Church in this way. If God has spoken to you through his word, or if you're wanting to reach out to pray, or just wanting to know more about our church, access our website. There you can connect with us and also have access to other contents. We are a church that lives to know Jesus Christ personally and to make him known. We believe he is the hope of the world and wants to give you hope as well. We believe the best news ever has come in and through him. May you know more of him and make him known today. We'd love to hear more from you.